The Sports Career Podcast, episode 302, How to Build an Elite Mindset. Sports Achiever and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. It's so great for you tuning in today. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who can inspire and encourage you to be the best version of yourself in what you're doing with regards to your career in sports. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show, this week's special guest is Gareth Timmins. Gareth is a former Royal Marine, best-selling author for Becoming 0.1% How to Build an Elite Mindset. Also, he is a fitness professional too. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Gareth as a podcast special guest on the show. That's when today's episode, Gareth will share his sports and military career journey and explain to you how you can build an elite mindset with regards to your sports career development. Gareth, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. A bit different guest to my usual sport industry guest, but for the listeners, can you share to the listeners your sports and military career journey? When did it all start? Sure. So I started playing rugby from uh, a really young age, started about eight years old. Uh, I eventually turned professional uh, for Leeds Rhinos, uh, played for Bradford as well, just for a short period. But then I left, I suppose, quite young, really, uh, just after almost breaking into the well breaking into the first team uh, and then joined the Royal Marines when I was 20 went all the way through as an original uh, and then became a Royal Marine commando so I had kind of a really full childhood of sport and then playing elite level sport and stuff and then uh, obviously joined the Marines so going back to that childhood of sport because it is a sports career podcast may I ask like what you learn what sort of early lessons from rugby league helped you with the that transition into making that decision of going into the Royal Marines. I'm just curious then because I want people to think they've got choices at an early age, but I'm intrigued what you learn from rugby league from the early days. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I think sport is brutal, to be honest. I think I think when you I think amateur kind of sport is is relatively it's safe on yourself concept. But I think once you start getting finding success or you start really, really competing for places at, like, say, Yorkshire level uh, and then, like, academy and professional sport, I think you have to be so resilient in yourself because people are after your positions. If you don't perform, you're going to get dropped. And I think it, for a young mind and especially, like, a a young teenager, it's a really, really lot to handle, handle mentally. Uh, and that's what I found. I found the pressure to be, the pressure to p- perform, to be great, really, on... On, on myself, uh, but unbeknowingly, I think playing sport and especially rugby league, it just prepared my body and me mentally for that kind of endeavour in the Royal Marines, and I didn't even know it really at the time. I always saw rugby as a failure, a massive failure. I, I left, I stopped playing rugby just be, basically because I got offered really poor money 
and it wasn't what some of the others were getting and I thought that my value was more than that and they wanted to sign me to level 23 but I I decided to uh, I wanted a one year contract to level 20 and I thought 23 is too old to be cut away if I'm no longer needed because other people will be established in teams so that's the reason why but I didn't just leave and go to another club I just completely left the game and it were almost just just incredible really like the the transition but yeah it just set me up I just thought I've come from one elite environment I want to test myself in another uh, and that was the Royal Marines really just see if I could do that. Thank you so much for sharing that and that was in the book and like May I ask, like, reflecting now, how's that made you more of a stronger person, making that big decision? Mate, that decision, really, it was just like the Truman Show. It really was. It was like, it, all of a sudden, I'd, I'd absolutely thought that I was going to be a professional rugby league player. I'd already played a couple of times on telly at a very young age, at about 17. And it were all, I had, I had no plan B. It was just plan A was to turn professional at all costs. And when it didn't happen... Or there were uh, glimmers of that not happening. It was just such a reality check that I just fell off, fell off the rails completely. I had like a year, a year and a half of going out drinking and fighting and taking drugs and stuff, and really, really fell off the rails. And yeah, it, it just had a, it had a massive, massive effect. I didn't actually get over that until I was about thirty years old, believe it or not. That transition. I, I used to have dreams and dreams of playing in front of big stadiums and my career taking off and then I'd wake up and I'd just be like, I couldn't believe that it wasn't real. It was crazy. It took me a long time to get over it, but mitigating that transition at the time felt massively, massively pressurised. Had I not been successful in the Marines, I would have felt like a complete failure, but it taught me so much about life uh, and, and that really did set me up for success in the Marines. It was almost fundamental, really. With regards to failure, because this is actually, I did have a quote of you from your book, which was a reality check for me this morning. It, you said this in the book. It's one of your key point takeaways. Uh, fear is an illusion in the mind to prepare the body for the very worst outcome. Sure. So when you said that quote and what you've just said now, was it more physical or was it more mental illusion or was it both at that time? It was a me- It was completely mental. It was completely mental. The problem that I had was was how I, how I thought about myself, how I how I encapsulated, uh, or kind of conceptualized me leaving rugby. Uh, although it was very much my choice leaving the game, I always viewed it as a failure. I always viewed it that I wasn't good enough, uh, and that had massive massive problems for my self confidence. So much so, mate, that I didn't really become, I suppose, what I call intrinsically self-confident in myself and my abilities until I were about maybe 30 again when I uh, when I started at university. Because I just, it took me, I was so conflicted into kind of who I was. Uh, am I this person that I think I am? Am I good at these things or am I just wanting to be in these environments but I don't belong and that's kind of in a nutshell where I was mentally and it's only I think in recent years only in recent years have I fully become comfortable and absolutely confident in who I am Uh, but that journey's been been a roller coaster it really has. Sorry I hope you don't mind me 
unpacking this onion because I think a lot of people no. learn from this um, massively. Is it due to our identity? We put pressure on our identity of who we want to be and where we want to go. So, for example, rugby league, it was like push, pushing a, a big boulder up a hill. But when when we talk about your book in the Marines, it was like pushing the boulder down the hill. It sound yes, you had challenges in that experience, but you built momentum, good momentum during your training that led you to where you are now. So I just want to decode this a bit more. Was it due to, was the pressure, you kept on saying you put pressure on yourself and you look at it as a failure. Is it because it was like the identity you thought you were going to be a rugby player? It's the that, that identity of like who we are as an individual. Yeah, I mean, every, everybody in the village knew what I did. Uh, my identity was our, our rugby player, uh, our at Leeds. Uh, my dad were fully bought in to the fact that I was going to turn professional. And all of a sudden, you've got to kind of rip that mask off and tear that down. And it's like, what? Like, what are you going to do now? Or what now? What now? And I didn't think I could do the Marines, is the short answer. I just thought, I mean, the, the odds back at the time were one in a thousand was, was successful in, in that in that kind of plight. And had I have failed at that, it would have reinforced the fact that I thought I were a failure anyway at rugby. So it were a massive, massive risk for me to go and do that. But I just thought that any kind of exposure to that experience and any kind of weeks or times time in training would make me a better person, would bring me out of this current void that I'm in. Because I were like, mate, I was so, so professional and dedicated. I'd, I'd like watch film, uh, movies on, on rugby, uh, training stuff on rugby. I'd watch Walter Payton from the NRL uh, and all his running and, and tackling and bigots and all stuff like that. I'd read books about rugby. I was fully bought in. Uh, and then all of a sudden, that were just kind of gone. And uh, yeah, it was just a massive, massive. But what had happened is, I think what had happened with the rugby is I had I'd kind of, my dad was a strength and conditioning coach uh, in, in, in elite level rugby. So I'd been in dressing rooms from being like three or four years old with the players and hearing all that kind of thing, hearing the team talks, being in the stadiums, I had like access onto the pitch and in the dugouts and all stuff like that. So I think by the time that I'd got to 18, 19, I felt it felt like a lifetime and it, nothing were new. And in all honesty, I'd kind of looked over the precipice and it no longer interested me. There were elements of it that I just thought, I'm just not, I'm just unstimulated by rugby league, uh, even though I really wanted to make it. But I think I wanted to make it for other people rather than me. One person I want to bring in sort of the conversation, because I know he had a crucial part, particularly where your confidence was low, was was it your granddad who gave you that confidence of this is the right time to try out for the Marines? Because he just sort of said, from a fitness standpoint. Yeah, so my granddad always used to say, you need to go in the Marines. And this is a, this is that classic conflict in identity from what you feel to what other people see. Do, do, do you know, I mean, it, it's it's mental, like, my granddad says, you need to go in the Marines. You need to go in the Marines. Now, I didn't really know at a young age what that was. Uh, but it was actually my dad. It, it was my dad. I told him that I'd had applied for the Marines and I withdrew it because I, I didn't have the confidence to do it. And I said, right, I'm, I've, I've applied for the Navy. And I said, in a few years, I'll go across to the Marines. And he just said, you're ready. He just said, you're ready now. Like, stop messing about. Like, you're ready. 
And I think that kind of endorsement, I just thought, if he thinks I'm ready, I'm ready. So I'd, I phoned the careers office up the next day and just said, I want to transfer. I want to withdraw my application for the, for the Royal Navy and go for the Marines. And uh, they just said, like, we think that you're the perfect candidate out of everybody that comes in to go for the Marines. So we'll, we'll, we'll change you over, no problem. And that were it, mate. That were basically it. I went in and, and just uh, looking back, right, it, it was all so inevitable. I mean, I went through as an original. There were 11 of us left out of 58 that started training. And that's after everybody else has been cut away in selection and fitness testing and everything. Uh, I always had a, I was always so mentally strong at rugby. Uh, so it were all inevitable. It were always so inevitable to be to get to the end and do it. But at the time, it's uh, it's such a life lesson. It's such a you just oh I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And all this worry, but it's just there's so much in a sense inevitability to it, barring getting injured. Yeah, exactly. I bet the injury was. Getting injured is the thing, the only metric to be mindful of when applying. But can we dig into this life lesson? Because like you said, it's so easy to look back and reflect. But from a confidence standpoint, if you had to rate yourself one to 10, one very poor, 10 buzzing, which I doubtful. But what was that moment with regards to you applying for the Marines from a confidence standpoint? Because I think that influences how we perform. But I'm just curious of how you increase that confidence so what was that sort of number at that time oh probably 50 50 mm-hmm. so five I'll out of probably, ten i will probably yeah i will probably 50 50 at the time of applying uh i had a mix of emotions mate i, I were like war scared me because that's where marines will always go first before anybody else but it excited me as well i i, I thought i could do it i didn't think i could do it i were like constantly going back and forth but as soon as I applied and I kind of started the process I just to offset my lack of confidence I just trained so so hard because I thought if I train really really hard I just thought I'm going to give myself the best opportunity I can to do this from a mental and physical perspective so I just ran uh, like a a professional rugby league pre-season for myself because uh, because I, I experienced it at Leeds, I just redid that for myself. So I'd go ill running on a Saturday morning and do the hills. I did all strength and conditioning. I did like what you would call wads now or high, or hit training, just swimming, every everything. Just trained like a proper elite athlete for nearly six months, and then uh, and then I started and went down and yeah, I was just I was just ready. By the time I went down. Already, and one thing I want to talk about as a theme because I think it's really important, and we were, we are going to touch on the book. But one thing you were excited was you were actually leaving leaving the village of where you're from, and like you said that if you change your environment, you know you have a different outlook in life in a way. And I'm just curious. I want to share this life lesson because I think sometimes even the listeners where they're figuring out their career steps, just by changing your physical surroundings, you see it's almost like the light at the end of the tunnel. So can we talk about that? And you even mentioned in the book that when you went back home, the people in your environment were doing the same thing, same old thing. And you're like, actually you are progressing. So could we just touch on this lesson? I don't want to be specific to individuals, but I, from your book, I'm just saying, I don't think we talk about this enough of 
change of our environment can change our horizon. It just, I think, without any kind of mentorship in it and understanding, it just felt like a an innate thing that I had to do. I had to leave here because I knew there was there was there was nothing here for me. I could see myself further down the line. I didn't want to be the guy sat in the pub. Do you know what I mean? I didn't want to be that guy. Uh, and there were no opportunity. There still isn't. The people that I knocked about with then that I talk about in the book that were doing the same thing when I went home from the Marines are still doing the same thing now. Uh, it's like it's a, a bit like a bubble. And I just thought, I need to change my environment. I need to be surrounded by elite-level people or be in elite environments. Uh and test myself physically and mentally to the complete utmost to be cut to to see what I'm fully capable of, of of achieving mentally and physically, and that's always kind of I think been my like subconscious kind of driver really that while I'm on this planet I want to see what I'm mentally and physically capable of doing to the absolute extreme or what's the point uh, I want to see what I'm capable of doing and push the boundaries for me at the time and where I was in my perception of failure and how much I didn't want it to happen again. The army or something like that would have probably been the safest option. But again, I just didn't, I didn't, and this is no disrespect to anybody in the army, but I didn't see it as an elite thing to do. I just thought anybody could go for that, but not everybody can go for and be successful in, in the Marines. So that's kind of what I, uh, what I wanted to do. And, like touching back on environment, mate. I'd, there, were, there were times before I went in the Marines where I'd, I'd walk around my village and yeah, I just was depressed. It got to a point where I just thought I have to leave soon because I am, I, I can't live here. I can't stay here any longer. It's it, it depresses me. The lack of stimulation in the day to day is is just something that that I that I can't handle. And then I'd go in the I'd go I'd, I went in the Marines. I'd come back off leave. And I was slowly becoming more and more disjointed from, from life here. Just for the listeners, if they're experiencing something similar, what were the what the first, I always say baby steps, because I don't want people to think, oh, hold on, let's get on a flight to Australia. <laughs> or go to the other side of the world. Let, let's just break it down. What's that first step? Is it getting your mindset right first, then physical? Or is it physically just commit to something new and then the mental state will adjust? It's, a, it's commitment. Commit instantly. But obviously, like you said, don't get on a plane and fly to Australia, but just commit to the steps in the process instantly. Uh, step outside of your comfort zone. That's what you've got to do. Just step outside of it. Yes, you'll let adversity straight away. Of course you will. But give yourself a chance to adapt mentally to change. Because but we, as human beings, right, you, you, you always have to adapt to change. A change is happening constantly. And I think while ever that you're resistant to change, uh, you're going to massively fall short as a human being because you, we can't resist change, same as we can't resist time. And change is always happening. It's 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 consistent. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's absolutely significant. It's just adapting to change. But just enactment, enactment, just whatever you want to do or whatever you're interested in doing, just take the first steps and slowly and subtly you'll start adapting to that new kind of, that new venture. So talking about the book, we better mention it now, like what inspired you to write it? And could, with regards to those first steps of change, 
Could you talk about maybe like the the first four weeks? If I'm correct, the first four weeks weren't actually part of the training program. You had to wait for all the re- like recruits to actually start. So um, that's how much I've enjoyed the book over it. I sort of know it inside out. But could you just talk about the book and also talk about the first four weeks, which were actually weren't part of the recruitment process, really? Um, it was a bit of a waiting game. Absolutely. So the book, uh, I mean, as a result of rugby, I didn't do very well at school at all. I got more or less zero GCSEs because I just thought I'm going to turn professional. I don't need school. 20 years old, Wakefield Westgate Station. I'm just about to go down on the train to Commando Training Centre Royal Marines, which is down in Devon. And uh, just as the train door shut, my mum just threw me a diary that she'd bought in like WH Smith's in the uh, in the station. And she just said, just just write things down, anything. I want to see what you've been doing and it'll it'll hopefully help you cope. And it was such a bizarre gift to give me because like I'd it just wasn't me in any way, shape, or form. I were kind of all physical, not academic at all at that time. And she gave me the diary and I like just thought, really weird, bizarre. And then on the way down, I had such a mix of emotions. I were excited, I was really, really nervous. I had like people phoning me and just saying like, good luck. And I think there were only two people that thought I could actually do it. Everybody else was saying, oh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. We'll see you in a month. Uh, you're not joining Marines, you're going to join the Navy. So I kind of opened the diary and I just wrote in there, look, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster, like I'm strapped in and it's setting off. And all of a sudden I want to get off, but you can't. You're kind of committed and you've, you've got to see the roller coaster through before you can get off. Yeah, I, as soon as I'd wrote that kind of first entry, I just felt completely compelled to write in it every single day. And that's what I did for a year, basically. Just started journaling. And I think it got to a point where I just thought, especially after I'd wrote in it, in it for a week, I just thought, well, I've got a week's content. What's the point in not having two weeks? And what's the point in having three weeks? And why would you start and not finish? So I just finished what I started. And I think a lot of people had, have, have tried to do it, but nobody's ever been successful in completing it. But because I had like kind of like OCD from playing rugby in terms of performance and getting better and wanting to reach this perfectionist, it really kept me consistent with the diary. So sometimes we'd have like two, two or three nights of no sleep. And while everybody were in bed fast asleep, I'd be on end of my bed like absolutely hanging out, trying to write down what we'd done and how we were feeling uh, before I went to sleep. So it made my experience like a hell of a lot more stressful and and I suppose partially more difficult but it just captured something that's never ever been captured before and yeah the first four weeks mate I mean we you get down there and it's just you step into a different world and it's you, your senses are getting absolutely attacked from the minute that you get off the off the train and you, you walk in and we got there and we didn't have enough lads to start training because we I think we had 18 or 19 lads so they said, you've got to wait another two weeks before another troop comes, then we'll amalgamate you uh, and then, then you'll start training. So we, in effect, we had we had two two or four weeks where we, we effectively didn't, didn't even start the 32-week-long course. We just had four weeks of being there where we just were just getting just beasted, really, just living in what's called foundation block, which is a massive singular dormitory that has like 60 beds. It's got like 60 beds in it, uh, just like you your iconic full metal jacket kind of opening sketch, the film full metal jacket, lockers, communal showers, uh, and all stuff like that. And it was just a, 
And there were some lads that got there on day one and went home straight away. There were some lads that, that got down on the train and stayed on the train and went home. Too much for for some lads straight away. And at the time, you're just thinking, what on earth am I doing? Like, what on earth am I doing here? Uh, and it's, yeah, it's crazy. Just reflecting, what were those were those four weeks harder maybe than the 32? Because I always think, just hear me out here, like a wedding or a funeral, the worst part of it is that waiting game before it, when it gets going, a wedding or a funeral, the, it starts, you know, the whole event happens. But I think you get the edge before waiting. And I'm just curious, were those four weeks harder than the actual 32 mentally? I think there were elements of it that were, that were uncomfortable mentally. But we did quite have a watered-down experience in that first four weeks. We really did because it were like the training team hadn't yet arrived. You have a training team that takes every troop through. So you might have four corporals, a sergeant and a and an officer. That's your training team. And they are and a drill instructor and they take the troop through training. Now they hadn't properly arrived at that point. We just had the, the drill instructor who in the initial stages teaches you how to iron, how to shower, uh, how to set up your how to iron your bed, your bedding. You have to have a line, uh, an ironed perfect line from your sheet that, that goes onto your pillar uh, and that has to be married up perfectly. Uh, all this kind of nonsense just to like kind of put you under time pressure and basically keep you awake all night. So they hadn't arrived, but then after the four weeks, they did arrive and it just, that's when training started. Because it, it just got so, so intense and uncomfortable. Like you'd get 15, no, no, like 15 to 30 seconds to get changed out of one uniform into another. And if you weren't done in 15 to 20 seconds, 30 seconds max, you'd be doing press-ups or burpees or a circuit for half an hour before anything started. And you were just constantly, constantly under time pressure. Kept awake all night. There were There were times in training where in between week eight and week ten, we had uh, we had ten hours sleep in two weeks. They like kept us awake for five days, solid. Uh, and there were lads like falling asleep, stood up. When you'd have to catch them before they hit the floor, it were just yeah, just uh, absolutely brutal, brutal experience. Yeah. But from that, because there is a theme um, I want to talk about with it, which you came up with through the diary experiences at zero point one percent mindset. So when did that shift in through the extreme situation? Let's say the sleep deprivation of lack of sleep. But reflecting from you experienced lack of sleep, how did it implement that zero point one percent mindset through that experience? Yeah, I mean, I think initially, mate, the the, the you could call it the 0.1% mindset, but that uh, eliciting that mindset and developing that mindset that keeps you there is basically one's ability to, to just endure suffering for a sustained period of time. It's going through the mundane every day. Obviously, massive sleep deprivation, but you've got to... Initially, mine was that I was so scared of failure that that actually was a really solid anchor for me in training. I didn't want to go home and validate all these people that said that I couldn't do it. So as a result, I suffered and I thought I'll stay in and I'll show you what I'm capable of doing. And then after a period of time, 
you're just becoming more resilient. You're just becoming more self-confident. Like, there's key markers in training. Uh, I mean, one that stands out is like the 12-mile load carry, which is you're carrying massive, massive amounts of kit. I think it's 70, 80, 90 pounds plus. And you've got a, you've got to more or less cover 12 miles in a, under a time cap. The stuff like that that seems absolutely impossible at the start of training. But when you get to these points and you complete them, all of a sudden you're just thinking, I can't believe I've just done that. And then you just like start thinking, I, I can do it. I think I can do it. I think I can, I can do this. And then you realise after a certain point that you're never going to quit. You will never quit. And I think once you arrive at that, that you will never quit regardless of anything. That's when you know you can you can you can you can start to back yourself, and you just think, you know what, barring injury, I'm going to do it. I'm sorry, I've got to interrupt. Is this why it's so important? Because everybody says, oh, you've got to celebrate mini wins, but this is a prime example where you have to validate an internal win mentally. Yeah, because then you'll never see what a win is or what a failure is. Can we just touch on that side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like I said, you've got to on the journey set. I call them key markers of success. Uh, and for me, the key markers of success were the points where I thought I would struggle or the points that I thought were kind of detrimental or obstacles in me being successful. So you had like, uh, I mean, if you read the book, you've got like Baptist Run, which is a, a massive test exercise where you've got to be really, really on point with map reading. Uh, you've got to do a night navex on your own with a map. Uh, and get from a certain point on would be coming to the to, to another point. You know, like an observation stance. It's just an, an assessment thing that again seems impossible, but it's a key marker of success if you get there, A, and B if you're successful on it, because it means that you move into the tactical phase of training where things start getting good after week fifteen. Twelve mile load carry. Uh then go, you go into commando phase of training after week twenty five or week twenty six. And all these like key markers and there's, when you get to them, I suppose, like you've alluded to before, mate, they're never really as bad as what you thought they were going to be when you get there because you're ready. Mentally and physically, you're ready. Uh, and that's a key thing that I took away from it really is, is that don't project too far ahead in what you're trying to do because break it down into small chunks and just have confidence in knowing that when you get there, to these places that seem really intimidating, you will be ready because you'll have undergone this process of building your self-confidence. That's kind of what it is really, mate. It's compartmentalising it and breaking it down and just using these key markers of success to build momentum, but acknowledge them. Uh, but don't dwell on them too much because you're not, you're, not, you're not there. Do you know what I mean? You're not quite there yet. Absolutely. And this is, again, common, like a state of the obvious question as well, what I'm about to say, but I think it's important for the listener. How important is it just to stay focused in the present moment? Like you, oh, I've done this, but staying, keeping the momentum going, but staying present instead of thinking too much ahead. So how, how did you manage that? Because I bet you that must have went up and down of it. So it's easy to saying stick to the present moment, but it's very hard when you're only getting two hours to three hours sleep, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is, mate, it is. They say like sleep deprivation is the window to the soul. Uh, and it's really, really true. Some really, really strong lads or that looked strong in appearance. A couple of days of sleep deprivation, it really just broke them, really. 
that's a classic one. But yeah, staying, not getting too kind of overwhelmed with it. I just thought that I needed a strategy, a mental strategy to get through training. And I thought if if I just look at this now from where I am, I've had a couple of days sleep deprivation. I've not fatigued, I'm broken. We're constantly getting hammered and put under pressure. If I look too far ahead, it's going to switch me off and I'm not going to be successful in this. So I just thought I have to, I'm going to break it down into weeks. So 34 weeks at the time. I'm just going to take it week by week. I'm going to get to Sunday and view that as a success that I've that I've managed to get to a, the end of a week and just use that as a key building block, really, as a key marker of success. And that's the philosophy that I took with training, mate, and and it it really, really helped me be successful because what happened was all of a sudden now we're at week 12 and then I just thought, like, I'm almost halfway and I still feel all right. I'm... I'm I'm not, yeah, it's been horrific, but I'm not by any means thinking about going home. Uh, and then I got to like week 15 and then week 20. When I got to week 20, I just thought, I'm like 12, 12 weeks off here from doing it. And it was the first time one of the PTIs that were taken has just said like, in 12 weeks, you could have green green berets on your heads. And I just thought, that's when I kind of like started thinking about the end, about reaching the end. I just thought, God, I'm, th- I'm three months away from 12 weeks away from potentially doing this. Uh, and it wasn't really until getting into the commando phase of it, the like week 25, week 26, where I just thought I'm six weeks off. This is when I can start thinking about the end and prepping for success here but until then mate I'd just done week by week and never looked past that I just thought I'll just find success in each week and build on that this is what I really love the book and there's one theme I've always enjoyed and if you don't mind I want to dig deep on this motivation versus consistency and here's a little snippet from your book because what I love about the motivation is you taught me from the book that actually I would say 75% of your experience you weren't motivated. And here's a little snippet. This was day 174, Thursday, 29th of November. I don't know what's up with me. I feel like I have zero motivation lately and can't be asked. Like I don't want to be here anymore and literally have only eight weeks left to push. It's a mixture of mental fatigue. And the fact is that this is a test I'm experiencing now. Like when I, there's more snippets like this where I think a lot of people wake up with no motivation but they have to still do what they need to do so can we just break down the? Th- so may I ask can we just go through the theme like motivation versus consistency and which one's more important from your point of view definitely consistency right because your motivation will not always be there and it's as simple as that you have to remain consistent now I talk about consistency quite a lot in keynotes uh, and the need to be consistent and what people fail to understand about consistency is or with consistency, they always feel like they have to be getting better. Like day in, day out, or on fitness testing, you have to be consistently improving. And that is not what I think consistency is about, or the value of consistency. So consistency for me is is getting, is just being there every day, regardless of how you're feeling or how you're performing. is just staying consistent in the journey just turning up the following day. Uh, 
and remain and, and keeping on track. So it could be keeping on track towards a particular event in a particular sport, training for a competition or training to become a Royal Marine Commando. Now you can't in, in the Marines, it's impossible to wake up and perform every single day to, to, to your best. Sometimes you scrape through uh, what you have to do and sometimes you fail. Uh, some, like, for, for instance, sometimes you can't do certain things because you're just absolutely gone mentally and physically. But you just have to try and you just have to keep going. And it's a, it's about really, it's about just staying consistent in the mundane. And the problem with staying consistent in the in the mundane is, is that your motivation is not always there. But it's doing what you don't want to do day in, day out. It's It's getting up and thinking, you know what? I feel really shit today and I don't want to do this. And it's so easy not to do it. But I always find that if you if you dip your toe in and you make yourself do what you don't want to do, you get consistency in that. So all of a sudden you can just think like, I don't want to do it. And then you do it. For example, like after this podcast, I'm going to the gym to do CrossFit. But I don't necessarily want to do it today because I've not slept very well. But I'm going to go and do it because I know once I've done it, it's going to tee me up then for better success and change my mindset for the rest of the day. And that's what that's where I think it's all about sometimes. It's it's going and doing things that you necessarily don't want to do or you don't feel a particularly ideal at, at that given moment, but you know are in line with success and being productive and being more successful. And that's where it was in the Marines, mate. It was, the motivation wasn't always there. I mean, I, I, got, I got asked in an interview, how many times did you lose focus? And I just said two or three times. But when I actually read, went over the diary again, it was more or less sometimes every day I was saying, I don't want to be here. Or I've got no motivation to do this. But again, it was the, I was so scared of failure, validating that negative opinion of me from my hometown. And that's what kept me there. And there's been recent, just going for, on a bit of a tangent here, but I read some recent, I've just done goal setting for a for a, a an organisation called Mentality, which is uh, a deal with like breaking the stigma about male mental health. And I read this research and, and it is, what they think in terms of achieving a goal is not visualisation of the goal, but visualisation of failure that keeps people massively, can keep people massively, focused in terms of goal acquisition because if you visualize failure and constantly put yourself back in the position of how it would feel to fail they're starting to think that that is a, a greater anchor of stability in goal acquisition rather than visualizing failure because you can visualize success but what happens when you become disillusioned however if you visualize failure and you don't look back with rose tinted glasses to how you used to live because the rose tinted glasses mean that you'll accept what you couldn't accept when you were there. So it's not too bad where I used to live. And maybe I don't want to do this. And maybe I'll just go and get a job on a, I don't know, on a building site, not being detrimental, but on a building site. And maybe it will be all right in the pub on the weekend. As soon as you come get back and step into that environment, you just think, what have I done? Like, this is not what I wanted. Because you forget all the small things that add up to, making you feel depressed, why you chose to leave that life. You have to visualise failure and visualise why you don't want to 
why you chose to leave, basically. Look, I hope the listeners are taking notes. And just to validate that piece of research, this is, a again, tangent, but I think it's a, it relates. I've been reading a um, sales book, and one evening the sales guy was doing call calls, and then the wife tapped his shoulder, and it was dripping with sweat. And he didn't even realize. And he goes, why are you dripping with sweat? Like he did about 10 business deals. And he goes, he didn't realize, but he said the fear of not making the sale to get food on the table. And it was like, that was his anchor with every sales call. But he just didn't realize the physical sweat. He, he didn't realize that he his back of his shirt was completely damp. And I was like, so probably like you, instead of like the mental visualization, it could be physical of, yeah. you know, um, the body cooling the body down with sweat with regards to the fear um and it's just yeah it is cra- it is crazy mate and and i think in i think in i've just started doing some stuff with, with surrey university and actually started to do like like undertake phd research through them and i've been looking at like entrepreneurial thinking well that's what the focus is is extracting the qualities of military training or elite military training to see how we can enhance entrepreneurial thinking what are the takeaways that we can take and I've got, I've just, I set up a clothing business, CrossFit clothing business about three years ago. Uh, and I think what has been intrinsic and uh, a part of the fabric of whether you want to call it success now, uh, I don't actually feel like I've arrived with it yet, but it's been failing. It's been it being a failure, putting it out there, turning all the lights on so people can see what I'm doing. Yeah, he's got a clothing company. All of a sudden, it flops. So, and I don't want it to. I'm scared of that. So, because I'm scared of it not being a success, I am constantly looking at ways of how I can improve it, get better, get established, develop this amazing brand, the quality of clothing. Uh, and before you know it, people like start saying, "Oh, I've, I've seen somebody like at, at the coast with one of your t-shirts on." Uh, you, you go to CrossFit events and people are wearing my clothing. Uh, and there's little glimmers where you think, you know what, like, how I see this is different to how other people see it. Like, people say, like, God, you, haven't you done amazing with your clothing? Congratulations. And you you don't, again, it's this identity thing. You don't always see what the external sees. You kind of, you, you compartmentalise it in, in your own mind of, and I think that's where it is, really. It's this, this this fear of failure where you're just constantly trying to not fail. And in doing so, you succeed. Wow, what a cool conversation. There's one theme I want to touch on massively, because this is probably one of my favourite case studies in the whole book, which was a trait that I'm glad was shared in the book of the sort of ethos or the values of being a Royal Marine. And it's with regards to integrity. There's a quick case study you shared where you fired a blank round during an exercise and you literally put your hand up to own the uh, the mistake if you didn't it meant all of your troop would have had to lay out all the ammunition and then probably the whole troop would have got punished so so you sort of said in the book like as much like integrity is a huge part yes we're human make mistakes but it was just a lovely case so not that you owned up to a mistake it was like the importance of integrity because if you didn't do that you know, you weren't in the good books of the rest of your troop you were with. So can we just touch on that of the importance of having integrity as like part of our values of a human being, not just a Royal Marine? Yeah, I mean, integrity really is is drilled home to you in the Marines. It is an absolute pillar that you come away with 
and that is your integrity. It's massive. It, it must get talked about every day. Have integrity in everything that you do. If you mess up, you've got to put your hand up straight away uh, and own up to it. So we were going, this were in the like real tactical end of training. This is for like week 24 where everybody that's there then, you know, are going to pass really by an injury, the originals anyway. And we were going to do an, uh, an attack on a farm, like a training serial, really, where you fly, you're firing blank ammunition and enemy forces, i.e. lads that are injured in training, are the enemy, again, firing blank rounds. The magnitude of this attack was big because we've been building up to it all week. Everything that we'd done all week and the training team had done in terms of planning, we're building up to kind of this attack. And we had assets like a Chinook picked us up and, and dropped us off. So it was big. There'd been big money spent on it. And just as we crossed what we call the line of departure, which is a line where you can no longer go back, you've got to engage in, in the operation, we'd gone over a barbed wire fence. Now, to get over the barbed wire fence, you put you, you get your weapon at both ends and you, you put it onto the barbed wire fence so you can get over it. But what had happened is, as I put it down, the barbed wire had quite unbelievably had depressed my safety off so that when I put my weapon off under the trigger and I stepped over, I pulled it, not discharged a blank round because technically you can't, but it it went off. Uh, it, that alerted the enemy and it basically just destroyed the mission in a training environment. And straight away, like uh, one of the corporals went, oh, the F is that? Who's done that? And it was just a massive, massive uh, mistake from me. But not only that, it's like, it's the stigma that comes with it. It's like incompetence. It's, you know, you're going to get absolute ridiculed and the piss taken from you from the lads. They call it a Nigel, a Neil Diamond or a Nigel Dempster, a, a negligent discharge. So you then get nicknamed uh, Neil Diamond or Recruit Diamond. And it's just, it's just awful. So I said it will make, so I, I just thought, I don't want to say it's me. How can I get around it initially? thinking about all these ways that I can kind of get off with it. And I thought, I can't because... And this is all happening in quick succession. Because all they'll do is, after the attack, they'll make us count all those rounds or they'll do it instantly, which will completely destroy the flow of the mission. And then they'll realise that I've got one missing. And and then I'll, then we will get hammered. And I will get even... I mean, it's a chargeable offence in the Marines. I got caught like in a sense, not court-martialed, but I got I got fined for it. It's on my record, military record, as a as a charge. It's that serious. So I just owned up, mate, and we went and we completed the mission. But after, uh, they took my weapon off me because it has to go away for, for an investigation at the armoury just to make sure that there wasn't a problem with it mechanically. It's that serious. And then they give me the GPMG, which is a massive machine gun. We all the link. And I had to, like, do the rest of the, the field exercise with this which if it's not shared around it can break you mentally and physically to, to the point that where you can't complete the training exercise so you'll fail training and I had the, so I had to contend with that then not only doing this but I had to carry this as a punishment for the rest of the the exercise so yeah it was but it was a massive lesson it was a massive lesson it went down well that I'd done that they appreciated what I'd done had I had not done it, we all would have been punished. And, and and I couldn't allow the rest of the team to get punished for my mistake. So 
owning up at the time were, were terrible, but again, a great lesson for me that I've carried forward in everything that I've done is always just, you make a mistake, you just, you, you own up straight away. It's all we've got. Absolutely. It's all, this is why I wanted to bring up, because I think we forget this as human beings, you know, it's all we're saying, we all got to be in integrity, but decoding it within ourselves with our decisions, it's vital. Reflecting now, Gareth, what are you most proud of from your journey looking back right now? Definitely training. Definitely getting to the end of training and, and completing that because I, I think the, the, the odds and the, the internal pressure that I put on myself to go through that, to try and establish who I was as a person, I needed to see who I was as a person. And I felt that that was the greatest test that anybody could do. And I still do now. Uh, the Marines is just the greatest test and journey of self-discovery that anybody could go on, really. Because you find out just so much about yourself. And I think my proudest moment was was getting to the end and getting the Green Beret. Uh, it was a bit of an anticlimax. It was more so that the, the nightmare was over. The training nightmare was over. I'd, I'd finished what I went to do and and. And that were it. But yeah, the proudest moment for me was, was getting to the end of training because I kind of put a lot of demons to bed uh, and proved everybody wrong. Uh, and that was that were a nice feeling. Yeah, I bet. But I bet it enhanced your confidence compared to the beginning of this conversation where it said it was 50-50. Comp- <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, Yeah, and it set me up for the rest of my life. Like I've, since doing that, I just completely back myself to do anything I want to do I just know that I can whatever I put in mind to I can complete if that's university any kind of events or, or business I just know that I, if, if 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 I go about it the right way and prepare and then just apply the same principles I, I, I will be successful in, in, in what I want it, what I want to do my goodness I hope people have enjoyed this as much as I have and, and taken the learning lessons as always, Gareth, I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. And throughout this, even during your rugby days, even with the Royal Marines, there's one thing I've just learned from you during this podcast is high standards. So would you mind sharing to listeners um, like three tips so they can be consistent of having high standards in with regards to their day-to-day performance? Like what would they be? I think consistency, again, like we've touched on, uh, you've, you've very got to be consistent. Even when you don't feel like you can, like it's been a consistent day in terms of like a good like a good a good day for you maybe you're underslept but just just get up and try and perform as many of the positive behaviors as what you can that are under your control uh attention to detail again is is absolutely crucial fits in with consistency as well but attention to detail just an understanding of, of how significant the small things are in life that we do that a lot of people overlook. It's what gives you the edge is attention to detail. It could be like meal preparation, uh, going to the gym in the morning when you don't want to go. Just everything, it's doing more than what other people are doing, basically. I suppose what, what Gladwell says in Outlier is the, the 10,000 hours of practice. It's being in line with that to become better and more successful. And yeah, I mean... Consistency, attention to detail, and just having a bit, just 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 backing yourself to a certain extent, just just stepping outside of your comfort zone. It's so important to do that to step outside of your comfort zone in order to 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 be successful and be where you want to be. So so yeah, def- definitely, definitely that. Amazing. I hope people have written those three down. So just as a recap, it's consistency, attention to detail, and get out your comfort zone. Yeah. 
put those into practice. And look, Gareth, how can people interact with you on social media? Where's the best places to go? Yeah, so I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram, mate. Uh, Gareth Timmins author. Uh, my clothing site is not point one projects, uh, which is into like fitness, CrossFit kind of wad clothing, wad wear. Gareth Timmins books on on Facebook and then website not point one uk and you can catch me there amazing to all the listeners listening in all those links will be on my website with regards to this podcast chat gareth it's been such a joy chatting with you today thank you very much thank you mate cheers buddy what an epic podcast chat with gareth and i so hope you enjoyed that as much as i did it's conversations like this that really motivate me to get back on the mic and it was so refreshing actually to have gareth from a different perspective of sport you know with regards to his rugby career where it didn't work out where it led to adversity he used fear as a tool that motivated him to be a royal marine i just enjoy conversations like this where we just get a different flavor or perspective from a career standpoint personally there's so much i learned from this even in the moment of interviewing gareth i was literally just blown away of what he was sharing And for me, the biggest one from a lesson standpoint, which I'm now putting into practice, and it is used a lot in a lot of self-development side of things, but I think he explained it so well with regards to motivation versus consistency. And I think we're in this, like especially online, we can get so pumped up over a motivational quote, and then we've got to literally live in the present moment in doing things we don't want to do or what something's challenging. And I think that's what I enjoyed the most was the focusing on just those consistency with the metrics of the mundane tasks and just literally building that compound effect with little tasks that's leading to the direction we want to go. So that's number one. The second part, which I admired the most from our conversation with Gareth, is that integrity piece during the operation. And despite the, shall we say, the situation that led of being a punishment from his troop and also you know as he said it was on his record being integral and having integrity of who are human beings really defines us with regards to our character and again that was another piece that hit home to me that if we make a mistake owning up to it I know it sounds so basic but at times we like to take the easy option and not be truthful and just put our hand up so Without a doubt, I'll be re-listening to this podcast with regards to my own personal self-development, but I'm really intrigued what was your biggest takeaway. So let me know at edbowers101 on Instagram and Twitter and share your biggest learning lesson. And I know I will engage Gareth to take a look of what you've learned and how you're going to apply it to your sports career and personal development too. But to do that, you've got to apply what Gareth said. So whatever you learn, write it down and then put it into action straight away. Even if it gets out of your comfort zone, which Gareth mentioned is a strength. It was one of his tips near the end of just pushing the boundaries with your comfort zone. That's how we really grow. So again, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I have and apply that learning lesson now, put it into practice and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Gareth said, focus on consistency and try to perform at a high standard with positive behaviour on what you can control.